Hey, 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 it's Vince in the Bay. Welcome to another edition of the Vince in the Bay podcast. I'm Vince, and this episode, my guest is Carter. Oh, shit, dude. How do you, how do you pronounce it? Mansbach? Very good. Perfect. Carter Mansbach. My guest this episode is Carter Mansbach. He is president of Jupiter Wealth Strategies. Welcome, Carter. How are you? I'm doing fantastical. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, no problem at all. And you are, of course, uh, in sunny southern Florida. Couldn't be far further away from you on the map on the on the other side of the country. Yeah. yeah, it's actually pretty rainy today, but it's good. It's all good. So, Carter, you obviously are a financial person. So, what I do is I'm a financial advisor. My focus is on growth. Uh, I look for companies that are up and coming. You know. Uh, Usually companies that have come public in the last few years, you know, usually in the tech field. And I was buying Facebook three years ago when everyone was telling me it sucked. And Under Armour got 13 years ago, Chipotle 13 years ago. Uh, I look for companies that are just really coming out and have a huge growth spurt in front of them. I normally like to buy companies that everyone hates. It's just so much fun and so much more rewarding when it all works out. So, yeah, you and I started chatting on Twitter, and I would say probably something connected with Twitter itself because you're out there in the Bay. But I just heard an expression, and I may ruin it, but it's something like Facebook are people that you know and you'd rather not hang out with, and Twitter's people you don't know that you do want to hang out with. So you and I have a lot of you know, joking around, going back and forth with each other, and I have no idea who you are, which is amazing. Yeah, well... Um... My name really is Vince, and I, I really am in the Bay, so um, I'm not a financial person. I didn't study economics. The extent of my uh, financial education is Econ 101, probably, in college, lots of CNBC and Bloomberg, but uh, ever since the financial crisis in 2007 is when I really started paying attention especially when they had that banker bailout, which I thought was just absolutely obscene and Uh insulting to me as an American citizen when it was obvious that the entire country, it was like 100 to 1 against this bill. People calling into C-SPAN, don't vote for this, don't vote for this. And we got uh, Hank Paulson, uh, ex-Goldman Sachs CEO, telling us, it's for your own good. Right. You know, well, if, if this doesn't happen, the whole thing collapses. And truthfully, to me- let me tell you, I'll tell you my perspective on it. Number one, if they didn't, I'm not, I'm not saying I was an advocate of bailing out the banks, but if they didn't bail out the banks that they did, this mess would have got a lot worse and would have been a lot more disgusting than it already was. Number one. Number two, my problem with it, besides the fact that these are the same people that caused it that we were saving, it also destroyed free markets. Companies are supposed to fail. It's part of the system. It's been this way since the beginning of the country. Companies go through bankruptcy and no one saves them. It's, that's more, it's, to me, it's more of a communist move to come in and bail a bank out. But, but ethically, it was disgusting. And, you know, again, I think that it helped put a little bit of a band-aid on the market because if all of them went out of business, it, it would have been an absolute train wreck. And I wanted to say another point about finances and you know not knowing about it i went to college for psychology i studied human behavior and i also you know i minored in business so i understood the basics of it but coming out into the world 
the psychology aspect of it is huge because I'm, I'm looking at human behavior in fear and greed of the markets. Like the whole world was scared that they're going to lose all their money in Brexit. You know, and I was like, should you be fearful or should you be greedy? Should you say, hey, this is, a, you know, this is England. It's not going to happen for two years. Let's, let's get ready to buy some stock. So there's this dichotomy. It's all about psychology that the, um, a, a person gets fearful when they should be greedy and greedy when they should be fearful. And it's, a, it's always a study of people, not just about numbers. Because if it was simple as numbers, that a company did, you know, let's say, a billion in business and they earned 50 million, the stock should be at a certain price. There really is nothing like that. It's just a matter of supply and demand, what someone's willing to pay and someone, what someone's willing to sell. And ultimately, that does come back down to emotions and fear and greed. I never have been able to wrap my head around people investing based purely on emotions. When I was in college, I was working at a uh, financial institution uh, doing an internship, and we got a tour of the uh, Pacific Stock Exchange. I can't even say that. Pacific Stock Exchange in uh, San Francisco. We got to cruise around the floor, and um, I chatted up a um, trader there who was looking at his, who was at his little terminal, and uh and I was like, so what's, uh, what's, what's the deal today? He's like, well, we're just all waiting to hear about how this uh, Monica Lewinsky thing uh, uh, works itself out. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second here. So you're going to decide whether you're going to buy or sell, say, IBM based on the outcome of a story of the president cheating on his wife? How are those, how, how are those related? I just don't, that doesn't make sense. It makes no well, sense. Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, you, you know, it's funny. I'm watching the show Aquarius, and it's all during, you know, Helter Skelter in the 60s, and there's all these race wars. There's one specifically after Martin Luther King got shot, 150 cities were ransacked. I'm dying to know what the market did that week. I was just thinking about this last night. I'm going to look it up. But, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely based on that. And, you know, yet you watch the extremes of emotions of people getting so negative on something or so positive on something. It's like when the room gets too crowded, you got to get out of the room. When you buy companies that are under duress, and we'll get into Twitter, but like Twitter is or has been for the last several months, it's not easy. You know, you put in 100 grand, you see it go down to 60 or 50 or whatever, and you, you're just scared. And you, whenever you're buying something that's not right, it feels wrong, which is natural. Okay, but 2010, when you were buying a house that was worth, is worth less than half of its value, it was scary. The environment was still crap, but you had to go through that fear to make a lot of money. So, you know, and there's, you know, there's an old expression, if you have the price, you don't have the proof. If you have the proof, you don't have the price. And what I mean by that is, if you have the price, you don't have the proof. So that's like a Twitter. Twitter has problems, new CEO revenues decline, MAUs decline, you don't have the proof, but the stock's relatively cheap by all metrics. Facebook, you, ha you don't have the price, but you have the proof. You know that Facebook is a juggernaut, and they have Instagram and all the other things, but the stock just went from 17 to 115. So, you know, my, when I was buying it at 30, and it went to 17, everyone thought I was out of my mind. I try to get to know the companies well, not just this is a stock. I'm on the service. It's cool. I'm going to buy the stock. I get to know what's going on as much as I can with management. I try to reach out to them. I try to speak to them. That's my um, secret sauce, per se, I guess, because when I was starting in the 90s, it wasn't like this. Everything in the 90s, we all did what I do now. 
kick the tires of companies, go out to see them, meet with management. Nowadays, you walk in, you're 45 years old, you want to retire in 20 years. The guy takes all this information, puts it into the computer, and says he has a tea time in five minutes, and he's out the door. So it's a bit of a different model than what I'm, to what I'm doing. I want to, uh, you, you just brought up Facebook and how their stock has skyrocketed since their IPO. The big knock on Facebook when they went public was, how are you going to monetize? And the buzzword was mobile. Oh, it's all about mobile. Once we can figure out how to advertise on mobile and generate income from mobile, that'll be the silver bullet. And is that what happened? One of the big screw-ups by Facebook that no one remembers is I think it was a... an LG phone. Facebook came out with a Facebook phone. They weren't thinking app at the time. They were thinking a phone that only works Facebook. And of course, it was a phone and all that. So that was a big fail. Was mobile the, the reason why Facebook succeeded? Absolutely not. The reason why Facebook succeeded was simply they have more information on people than anyone on the planet. When the stock was down at 17, I got in touch with the company. They explained to me, look, we could triple, quadruple our revenues, but we have to do it slow. Let's put advertising into perspective right now and understand what Facebook is. And Twitter, Facebook more. You know, you ha- let's talk about some different kind of advertising. You have a television commercial. Are you necessarily going to buy that new kind of bleach because you saw the commercial? Maybe. Can the company prove that you watched that commercial and walked into the store and bought it? Absolutely not. Think about an athlete wearing a hat. Think about a, um, you're at a a car race and the car's going around the track at 200 miles an hour with a little um, STP oil sticker on it. You're going to go out and buy oil because you saw that? What Facebook has that no one has is absolutes. Because you went out of your way on Facebook to say that you wear IZOD t-shirts. I'm not saying you wear IZOD shirts, but you know you wear IZOD, you wear Levi's, you like this, you like that. They know it's, it's, a, it's an advertiser's dream versus, yeah, you Google something. Okay, you may be interested in that for a minute, but they know that you like Nike. So Nike could advertise directly to you. That's the advantage that Facebook has. I believe Twitter as well, because I definitely follow things on Twitter, and they know a lot about me. But the main reason why Facebook has succeeded and continues to succeed is because they know more about you than anyone on the planet. Yeah. What is Facebook's product? The product is you. Yes, precisely. And, 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 you know, when Google came public, people would say, it's a web page. What can it possibly do? But Facebook just... They just have that power plus. They own Instagram plus. They own WhatsApp plus. They own Oculus. My beef with Facebook now, the market cap of Facebook is bigger than Exxon, and Exxon does triple the amount of revenues. So everyone's betting that it's going to grow into itself and be this juggernaut. And I don't disagree with that, but I'm torn because I think that Facebook is – a joke in a lot of ways and really sad in a lot of ways. And I go on, there are people's parents who are dying, which who I grew up with, and then them themselves are dying. And it's people that you never really would have been in contact with if it had not been for Facebook. Well, it's nice and it's kind of brought it, people together. It's also a bit depressing to me. So Yeah, uh, I can't, not- I can't, I can't do Facebook anymore. When it first came out, uh, it was a novelty. It was kind of cool. Wow, I can track down almost anybody I grew up with. Right. 
and that seemed like a cool thing until it started happening and then it was <laughs> wait a second i think there's a reason why i haven't been in touch with these people for Absolutely. 15 20 years but i still keep it around because i know there are some people that the only way i can find them if i want to get in touch with them is to log on to facebook because i know right. they're going to be there yep and that's it. I just can't take it anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm done with seeing people's baby pictures and wedding pictures and, yeah. and all of that stuff. So I have around the same amount of people who follow me on Twitter as I do on Facebook. Obviously, everyone on Facebook, I would say 95% of them, I've shook their hand or met them or knew them at some point in my life. Like if I, I could write something really goofy on Facebook and I'll get like 100 people who f- like it. And then on Twitter, you get maybe 10, and I think therein lies the problem with not just the two services, but also human behavior as an American, because you need to be liked, like everyone needs to be liked, so it makes people feel better if they like what you wrote or if they thought you were funny. And Twitter, to me, is more heady. It's more intelligent, and it's not a need, at least not for me, it's not a need to be retweeted, because I know that if someone likes or retweets my stuff or responds, they really, really like it. They didn't just click as a sliding by, because it caught their attention, whether it was funny or a good picture or a good video or whatever, it actually caught the attention. And you know, I think that the, you know, Twitter's, Twitter's uh, you know, main user base is really a smarter group of people. I just it just feels that way. And the people that I, I've met some amazing people except for the uh the trolls. There's there's a whole section of Twitter reserved for complete retards. I agree. You know, honestly, I I swear to you and I've been on since I think 2011. I've had very little amount of that. You're lucky. I, yeah, I I am lucky. I see it and I get it. I don't for the life of me, understand what Twitter could do about it because they can't monitor every person that says something stupid. But I know there's ways of you know making people give their phone numbers, make make sure they have their information or something. I actually like Twitter's approach because it's more in line with the idea of free and open expression. And when you have that, you have to take the good with the bad. They do a decent job of monitoring stuff, and I think when people are being really abusive and it and it crosses the line into into you know ruining people's lives and stuff, I think for the most part they respond to that stuff pretty well because I've gone through situations like that, and I've seen a lot of people go through situations like that, and they usually come out the other side okay. It's like living in a free society. You, know, you got to take the good with the bad. This is like going into the playground when you're a kid and making sure no one says anything negative to anybody. Now, listen, the level of abuse that you're referring to is horrible, and I'm not advocating that. But the day-to-day nonsense going back and forth and people saying nasty things, it is what it is. I mean, and it's like that in life. You know, everyone's trying to protect everyone from hurting everyone's feelings. It's makes me insane because i always say you know to my kids that you learn more in the playground than you learn in school at times especially young when you're young 
how to deal with people, how to interact. And you have to get rejected sometimes. You have to deal with bullies and deal with people. So exactly. This is, yeah. this, is, this is preparing you for the reality of life. Life yep. is not fair. Life is hard. Life can be difficult. You're going to fail a lot more than you're going to succeed. You're going to piss people off. People aren't going to like you. It's not a perfect world. The more parents and teachers and, and, and these social justice warriors try to uh, shield these kids, the, the, they're setting them up for such disappointment and, and more failure later in life. There aren't safe spaces in life. I know everybody wants a safe space, but it doesn't exist. It's well, let me like, tell you, when, when my, I was, my daughter was probably seven. And she, she was swimming in races, and I was on the other side of the pool, like, holding a flag for another race. So I didn't see what she did. So it was a very genuine reaction to how I responded to her. Now, I grew up in Brooklyn, absolutely real, tough, hardcore kind of childhood. I have to watch my back all the time, whatever. And uh, Really, that surprises me. I'm, I'm uh, sensing uh, I, I, I could have sworn that was a Texas accent. Anyway, so... Uh, so what happened is my daughter comes running over to me like so ecstatic with something in her hand. And I'm like, cool, she probably won. So she goes, look, Daddy, I came in sixth place. And I go, take that, rip it into five million pieces and throw it in the garbage. Not, my daughter took it well. Not only did people around me were like, oh, my God, I was talked to by the, by the company that, that was running it. You can't talk to children like that. I'm like... I could talk to my child like that, and it's an embarrassment that you're handing out awards for sixth place because that just didn't happen in our childhood. Either won or lost, that's it. You know, so it, that's just a small example of how everyone's like just spoon feeding everybody and not, you know, not wanting anyone to be upset. It's just, it's not reality. It, it's really not reality. And, and you know, if anything, if things are worse and things are crazy, and they need to be prepared for all of that. You know, but Twitter, listen, Twitter's issues, to me, that's not the biggest issue. You'll lose a couple of people because people troll. I don't see why they can't troll on uh, Instagram. Facebook, they can too. I could go right now and make up a fake Facebook name and a fake email address. Oh, well, well the, the, the golden rule is, I believe it's rule number 14 of the Internet, is you do not respond to the trolls because that means they win. You're supposed to ignore them and they go away and it works most of the time because if they don't, they just want a reaction. If they don't get it, uh, they're the reaction they want. They're moving on to the next target. Uh, right. And you know, and Friday I had a, a first time experience on Twitter. So I, I wrote something to the effect of if the news, if, if Facebook's going to shun the news, it, you know, and put personal crap from Facebook's friends in, ahead of it, the news is going to push people to Twitter where it belongs and has always been. So just like, something like that. So just by pure coincidence, someone I followed retweeted a tweet by someone else, and it was my words exactly. And I, I'm reading it like, I know those words. I wrote those words. So I tweeted to him. I'm like, something to the effect of, you know, you could, just, you could have just retweeted. I wasn't mad at all. I thought it was kind of, you know, it was kind of cool. Like, he, you know, he copied me, but all he had to do was retweet it or say a comment about it. So I called him out on it, and then, like, all my little fans or people that followed me, they called him out on it, and then he blocked me and everybody. Instead of just responding, be like, oh, my bad. 
This is a guy with like 6,000 followers. He's a financial guy. He copied my, and it's, there was proof of it because mine said 9 o'clock and it said 10 o'clock. And it was such a weird phenomenon. But that's, that's the fun part of Twitter. I enjoy that. Yeah, there is sort of these, this unwritten etiquette on Twitter. The longer you're on it, you start to pick up on it. Even if I see a tweet and I'm like, God, I wish I said that. I, I, I couldn't. In fact, I can't. I couldn't have said it better myself. Right. You know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll just retweet it. I always try to keep in mind that uh, that that some people are pretty territorial about their thoughts and their tweets and stuff like that. Sure. And I like the fact that there is a good chunk of people out there that are just interested in uh, sharing knowledge, sharing information, and helping each other out. So let me ask you from your perspective, because my perspective being on the East Coast, because I, I, you know, I spent the week in San Francisco a month ago, so ago, and we'll talk about that shareholder meeting. For Twitter, yes, but absolutely. My, my question for you is more being in the middle of it and being in the Bay Area. What is the perception of Jack Dorsey? What is the perception of Twitter as a company from being you know, there in the middle of it all? I love Twitter. I'm addicted to it. I love it. I think it's a fantastic social media platform. I could live with with just Twitter and and none of the other stuff. So to me, it's like a you know my it's a lot of things to me. You know, from you know keeping up with uh, sports to you know my own personal news feed. I think it's a fantastic tool in this uh, new information age. The problem I have is. Um, how is it going to survive long term? I don't see where it's profitable. I don't see how it can ever get profitable. And my feeling is ultimately these guys have to just be subsidized by someone so they can keep the product the way it is. So my ideal scenario is Google buys Twitter and lets Twitter be Twitter and they don't have any pressure to turn a profit just kind of like what they did with youtube right first of all you got to understand some of the dynamics behind twitter that you're not looking at number one the company's got 3.5 billion in cash about a billion in debt let's just call it like 2.4 billion in in cash company's not going to run out of money for like a decade or more it's actually some number like 60 years if you really break it down on the amount of money that they're doing versus growing and all that. Okay, so first off, they're not MySpace and they're not going out of business anytime soon. Can they go out of business? Sure. If MAUs drop off the cliff and revenues drop off the cliff, it could get very ugly for them. Part of the problem at Twitter, in my opinion, is that cozy, comfortable cash position. Because when you have that, you don't have the sense of urgency that you might if you had no cash or you were trying to, you know, just stay alive, like companies that you've seen in the Bay, just surviving and battling. So that's an issue. But I'm going to give you my best view of how they survive. First of all, let me just talk about what Twitter has that no one else has, and that's the reach. And what I mean by the reach is and no matter how bad the stock has done and no matter how bad management has been ridiculed in the Bay and in the world, this one thing has not changed. And to me, this is the key to the success of the company, one of them. And it's, I think it's probably the most important, something I've been saying for quite a while. And what I mean by the reach is you cannot go a day, even if you're not on Twitter, to be touched by Twitter. 
whether it's you know you're listening you listen to sports radio you will not go 20 minutes without hearing the word twitter hashtag at sign forget about all the other social medias just talking about twitter you read an article in the newspaper or in the magazine or on or online you can very rarely get through an article with not only one tweet but maybe three or four and all of that property and all of that franchise in my opinion will be monetized in one way shape or form I think that one of the things that you need to know if you don't know about Twitter that their chairman of the board uh, Omid Kadashini, I probably said his name wrong, Kadastani, Kadaskani, he was one of the early um, he was one of the empo- early employees at Google and he sees the potential and the reach and the reach is the key because you can't undo what the culture has already done. So while Jim Cramer will bitch about Twitter anytime he can, underneath him is his at sign, and he'll say at the end of saying that they suck to tweet me at. Okay, so that part of that reach outside, I believe they're going to monetize, and I believe it's a metric that no one else has that they need to not only start to monetize, but more importantly need to communicate. Wait, so what does that mean? Does that mean they're going to charge Jim Cramer every time he flashes his Twitter handle on the screen? Not not at all. Okay, so there's a couple of things that I know at this point. 500 million people per month visit Twitter one way or another. They may click on a tweet. I'm not talking about guys who, like us, uh, you know, regular users. I'm talking about people outside of Twitter. One way or another, they're clicking on Twitter. And that 500 million people, and this is a very big piece to this conversation because the company now has someone in charge of marketing, Leslie Burland, and we have yet to see what that marketing is about. There's a couple of things that need to happen for – oh, so let me finish the point. I think that there's a couple of things to consider. Number one, 500 million people are coming. This is a, a, a officially, official, officially unofficially official because it was tweeted out and then it was removed and then it was confirmed that they are now monetizing people who are visiting that are not users. So for a moment, think about Mr. Jones reading an article about the Cleveland Cavaliers, clicks on a tweet, boom, he's on Twitter. There's a little marketing something going on there. And they claim that that advertising is as sticky as it is if you're on the site. Okay, that's number one. Number two, this is the way I describe it, and I think it will play out in the next couple of years. Do you know how Google makes their money off of you? You go on and you're shopping for a new BMW. So you're looking mm-hmm. at the BMW 428i. You, go to, you click on BMW USA, you go, to the, you go to the website, whatever, and then all of a sudden for the next three months, all you see, no matter where you go, is BMWs. Yeah, any, any sites you go. Yeah, because they have these internet trackers, which are annoying as hell and also kind of slow down your your entire uh, experience on the internet as well. It's and, insane. You know sometimes it works because sometimes you're, you're looking for a BMW and you see a deal and you click on it and all of a sudden you're in the dealership. But the point is, is Twitter has that power. I don't believe that they've done anything with it, but they have that power. And here's what I mean. Let's say hypothetically I'm in the Northeast. I just clicked on a tweet by someone on the Buffalo Bills. They now know in that moment that I'm definitely a football fan. I'm probably male. I'm probably from the Northeast. I love football. I love the NFL, and they just got information from me. So that's a, so I, I see that. And there's another thing that I see that I don't think is reality. It's just something that I envision. So let's say there's a tweet that's hot. 
okay, and there's something, whatever it is, whether it's you know someone taking a selfie or whatever, in that tweet, I could see them advertising in the tweet, throwing a little Home Depot sign or whatever. But my point is really comes down to reach, the power of the reach. And, and this is my best bet on Twitter going into the next five years. And it's all about marketing. And it's all about onboarding process that's easy to understand. As Jack Dorsey says, he wants to make Twitter as easy as looking out the window. And it's, it's like looking out of a window in a freaking blizzard because I, I put people on it. They call me a month later. I have no idea what's going on. So the, 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 the best case scenario for me for Twitter and how I believe would be successful in marketing and bringing people back to it, because remember, 1.5, 1.3, I think, billion people came to the site, signed up for it, and never came. So they have all that, those people to reach to to bring them back. Okay, so it's possible beyond the fact the rest of the world is interested in Twitter. But this is my thing. In the early 2000s, I remember so clearly how Apple was a cult. And everyone who used Apple was like, you have a PC, what's wrong with you? Apple's the best. I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to hear it. And fast forward to what happened today. This is the thing about Twitter, and you and I will very much agree upon this. The people that are on the site absolutely love it. It's their, they get up in the morning, they look at it, they look at it in the afternoon, and they look at it at night, just like you, correct? Oh, yeah. I check my Twitter feed before I check my text messages, my email, anything. Me too. Me too. Because it's that prevalent. It's that important. My point is, is that we know there's a value in there. There's a lot of people that have no idea what we see and what they're missing. And there's got to be some intrigue when Donald Trump or whoever tweets some ridiculous thing and you're not hearing it. You're missing out on it. If they're able to create a campaign, to, the, to me, this is my opinion, what are you missing? I think that they could start bringing people back to the site. Also, I have teenagers, so this is the, this is the way it is. A year ago, it went Instagram it was the number one uh, app for them, and I, also, I ask all their friends. Then, uh, then Snapchat was coming in, and then Twitter. Facebook's not even in the, in the conversation at all amongst teenagers. So what happened was, in the last year, it's definitely Snapchat first, and Instagram and Twitter are close for the teenagers. They, and I said this in an article that with USA Today, they need to make Twitter and Periscope and all this more fun, more kid-friendly. But m- most importantly is, think about it like this. If there's a campaign that's amazing, that makes people want to check it out, once you get there is where the problem begins. Because if you go back for the first time in a, in a year or you've never been there before, it's just a clusterfuck for lack of a better word. And it's just, it, you don't know what you're doing. It takes a while. And look, people figured out the language of Starbucks. They could figure, like, figure out the language of Twitter. People, you know, I, say, I said Ben Carson is a brain surgeon. That's hard. Figuring out Twitter is not. But it is cumbersome, and people don't get it. If they could figure out a way, when you come, and this is, to me, the simple thing. You get online, you, you're signing up, or you're signing back in, welcome back, and a, a little stick fit, uh, figure goofy video of exactly how it works. That's the challenge. Outside of Twitter, I think there's a huge opportunity. I think the company could double or triple their revenues in the next 10 years because of the outside reach. If, by some strange, amazing chance, they could bring people back to Twitter, this is going to be one of the greatest turnaround stories in history in technology. 
Yeah. Well, I think people signing up for Twitter, leaving and coming back is the story of how you get into Twitter. Uh, I think it's just a matter of what's the time gap between you signing up and then coming back and actually using it. Because when it first came out, I was hearing this buzz about it. I had, you know, uh, co-workers at work who were logging onto it and using it. I'm like, what the hell is this Twitter thing? All right, I'm going to see what it's all about. And I signed up and, yeah, I was just kind of, I don't get this. I'm just, just not feeling this right now. Sorry. And I just just left it there for probably almost a year. And then Twitter was really gain, starting to gain more buzz and more, more momentum. I was getting tired of Facebook. And so I gave Twitter another shot. And then I, at a certain point, you just get it. Yeah, you you, just, you it. just get it. And, it. and it's hard to explain to people. Like, you can walk somebody through it and everything. But ultimately, you you just need to feel it out yourself. It's kind of like choose your own adventure once you figure it out. Um, You know, you tailor your feed to your personality, your interests, whatever you want. If you want to use it strictly as a news feed and you just want to just follow CNN, ABC News, Fox News, all these things, you can just make it your news feed. Or maybe you just want to keep up with your favorite bands and stuff. So you just follow your favorite bands. and and let's, Let's go a little further, okay? First of all. The ability to reach somebody on Twitter is incredible, and I'll tell you where it began for me. Twitter was $73 a share. I didn't touch it. came public at, uh, what was it, 26, went to 70. I just watched. I was just a, a spectator because I don't like to buy them right away. So stock starts dropping. It's 50. It's 40. I, do, I start my, my work to get in touch with the company. Call them. Leave a message. No one calls me back. I email them. I get a cookie-cutter email back saying that we don't take calls from financial advisors. You could look through our paperwork. I'm like, what? So then I tweeted to Mike Gupta, who was the CFO at the time, and I said, I'm a financial advisor wanting to invest in your company, and you will not return my calls. So about six hours goes by, and I'm pissed because I'm thinking, what's the best way to reach them? So then I write six hours later to Mike Gupta, Obviously, shit rolls downhill. Ten minutes later, my phone rang, and that was Twitter. And I have 30,000 stories like that. I believe that Twitter is the better business bureau of today. I, if you go through my Twitter feed, the issues that I've had, I was called an asshole in, uh, in, um, in the mall. I, went, I got in touch with Macy's, and you know, they set it straight. I mean, it's an incredibly powerful thing. Plus, you personally, I'm sure, as well as I, have communicated with, like, high-level people, CEOs, CFOs. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And I'll tell you, just thought of why I went to Twitter to begin with. The reason I went to Twitter was fantasy football. And for about a year and a half, two, two, two years, I had the upper hand on everyone in fantasy football because no one was on Twitter and no one knew what the hell was going on. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's like a cult. And if the pe- like I say simply, if every person on Twitter told, taught one person how to use it, they'd go from 300 million to 600 million people. Like that, you know, like I told two friends and she told two friends, you know, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a frustrating situation because it's messy and it's been messy for quite a while. You know, I guess they said the expression was, it was a clown car that crashed into a gold mine. And I think that that's true in a lot of ways. And also a lot of what was created by Twitter was created by us, the hashtag, the at sign, which is so amazing. 
in itself. I've been doing this 26 years. I've been involved with thousands of publicly traded companies, and there has never been a scenario quite like this. Imagine a scenario where the, the management of a company, the employees of a company, are on a network that their shareholders are on at the same time they're running a business. You cannot go through your feed without another suggestion of why there should be an edit button, or why there should be you know, 500 ca- uh, characters, and so on and so on. We're infiltrating them constantly, harassing them for all the what they could do and can't do. A CEO will, uh, or the CFO will post something about they're going down to Palo Alto, and the, and the shareholders will read into it, oh, my God, he's leaving the company and going to another company. So they're being harassed as management. They're being harassed as how they run their company. But there's never been a situation like this. Think about it. What other company that you have such ability to touch them that I could put up a tweet last night that I loved moments because I was watching the draft and Jack Dorsey and Adam Bain favored it. You know, it's, it, it's just a, it's a very almost incestuous, bizarro scenario play, playing out right in front of you. And there's never been a publicly traded company quite like this. Nothing. I mean, do you, do you have a Snapchat? No, that's something I wanted to get to also with you. So, so Snapchat, okay, I'm at the point now where I just spent about two months messing with it, mostly because I'm following my kids, but also because I'm understanding it. Snapchat's cool. It's fun, but I'm two months in and I'm bored. I love seeing my kids and the interactions that they're having. Um, but what the difference is when you go to Snapchat, and let's say you click on ESPN, there's like 12 video, quality videos of what's going on. It's not real time. It's not in the moment like moments could be. I think the way moments would be amazing if, if there was like a basketball and you click on it and you have both ESPN feed as well as tweets because just tweets is dull. And it was very cool for free agency because I was, scroll, I was scrolling through it and I, I knew every, every guy that was offered a deal. They did a very nice job on that. You know what? I should have checked it for that because I have... I think actually during the NBA Finals, uh, I inadvertently hit the Moments tab, and I found the the section on NBA Finals to be really comprehensive. And I didn't even think to try it with the fr- with the free agency thing. You said something early about choose your own adventure. I like to say that Twitter is the is the great American scavenger hunt, and I think that's a fault. There's stuff in Twitter like, like lists and things like that that are awesome that people don't even know exists, and that's ridiculous. So even moments, I don't think that many people know about moments. I think moments should be cleaner and crisper and stronger. I, I do really want to talk to you about um, uh, Facebook Live versus Periscope. Because, now, do you, have you Periscoped ever or Facebook Live or no? I just signed up for Periscope, and it was after I saw you do your Periscope. I, I think maybe it was uh, Twitter earnings or something like that. Oh, that was a while back. Yeah, yeah it was back. maybe a month or two ago. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was. I thought it was pretty cool because yeah, I'm. A, I my background is in, is in uh, film production and video production and stuff like that. So yeah. I have a video background. When I first heard about it, there's plenty of video streaming apps out there why why this one what's what is what application can i possibly 
use this for. And I thought you're, you know, just you having a little powwow with uh, shareholder friends. I thought that was a good application for it. I've seen other people use it to cover events like protests and stuff like that. I just haven't figured out how i want to use it as an application i don't know i haven't figured like i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna keep it there well, you, you have know? an listen you have a very big following you can use it you know and i and i say the, the my comparison between the two is it's almost exactly the same comparison between the two facebook versus twitter now the facebook live i've never done i don't know what that experience is like compared you know to what anything. it's good it's, it's actually a little bit cleaner it works a little better but it's going out to your followers, and this is really where my argument begins, why it's, it's exactly the same as Twitter versus Facebook, Periscope versus Facebook Live. If you're, if, where Twitter has that reach that I talk about all the time. So Facebook, you know, you do a Facebook Live. I only tried to do it once, my radio show last week, it didn't work. But uh, you're, you're Facebook Living to your crowd. When you Periscope, anybody anywhere on the planet could pick it up. It's much like a tweet. You put out a tweet, and who the hell knows where it's going to end up. You put out a, a post on Facebook, it's not like that at all. It's inside their little garden or whatever they call it. But, you know, when you put out a periscope, I've had people come with my periscope from Indonesia, from Israel, from Italy. You just don't know. It's so widely reachable, and I think that's their advantage. I'm not saying they're going to win at it. Now, one of the things that I want from Twitter, and it probably won't happen, but are you familiar with Musical.ly? Um, there's an app called Musical.ly. No, yes. not familiar. Okay, so here's the deal. Take a 30-second piece of a song. It goes in slow motion. The people lip-sync and act out whatever the song is, and then when they press play, it's in real time, and it's awesome. They have gone from zero to 80 million users in the last year or so. They just went live, so they have Musical.ly live, and if you look at it, it's almost a mirror image of Periscope, and I think this would be an amazing acquisition for Twitter because they could pick up 80 million younger people, which is what Twitter needs. So that's an interesting... There's a lot going on. I mean, look, the social media business is moving. WeChat in China is humongous, but you know, let me just say one important thing about Twitter that... You have to realize because I your fear I get and I people I know a lot of people journalists are fearful where you are that it just goes to the wayside and your favorite social media is gone. The key to Twitter's success beyond everything we talked about the, the marketing, the growth in MAUs, um, making it cleaner, coming out with newer products, VR, whatever is sales. So the head of sales is Adam Bain. When I spoke with him, I said to him, anyone who ridicules you should be shot because when he got there they were doing nothing and in the last few years they've gone from zero to two point i think it's two billion dollars in revenues and no one grew that fast facebook didn't grow that fast now they're going through a time where they're changing to video this next six months to me is the key to twitter's success they have allegedly a marketing campaign coming out you have the election you have the nfl deal which i think is very important and you have the olympics if in the next six months they can't start to see some traction, some change, some real positive momentum, I think the stock gets bought out lower or around here. But if they can make it work, which I do believe that they will, otherwise I wouldn't be involved with the company. You know, I, I believe that uh, it's important that they move. You know, that they move fast, and it seems like they are. The last like three months, they've had so many new initiatives. 
which is good. I am joined right now by Carter Mansbach. He's the president of Jupiter Wealth Strategies. And we've been talking about Facebook and Twitter and social media. And Carter, just a, a month or two ago, you were out here in the Bay Area to attend the Twitter shareholders meeting. And we've already, you've already referenced it a bit. I actually watched it. It was streaming on Twitter. And I saw you got to... Uh, ask uh, Jack and, and the other folks on the panel their questions and stuff. It looks like, uh, you know, they were at least they acted as if they were pretty receptive to you and the other people who had questions. Tell me a little bit about how that experience was for you. Uh, it was pretty intense. So let, let me back up for a minute and say again about how for the last two years, I've been involved with the stock and I've through Twitter gotten to know some of the management in a Twitter kind of way. So we weren't on the phone, we weren't drinking beers, we weren't hanging out, but I was communicating with them, which is what I do anyway. I, if, if there's a company that I'm very involved with, whether they're on Twitter or not, I'll get to know the management. Most of the time it's over the phone. I've gone to companies, you know, kicked the tires like Under Armour 14 years ago when no one ever heard of it. So Twitter's been garbage stock-wise, horrible investment. My clients are not happy, I'm not happy, and there's a lot of things that I, I was upset about and I wanted to be standing there, looking them in the eye, asking them the questions, and getting the answers. What I, just really getting a, a, a real, genuine, and I did. I know I got a genuine, genuine answers out of Jack Dorsey. So what happens is I fly there. I'm representing my shareholders as well as these, what do I call it, posse of people that have started following me over the last two years about Twitter stock in particular. So... My first question, which was the most important one, actually was my second question. No, it was my first question. No, it was my second question. <laughs> my, que- my most The press release question? Yes. You got a great answer on it, too. I did. Now, so let me, let me back up. I'm sitting in the room before we go into the shareholder meeting. And next to me sits down Mike Isaac from New York Times. He's a great dude. One of the classic examples of someone I've become friendly with on Twitter I never met him before. And then a, uh, probably about a dozen kids. When I say kids, you know, anywhere from 23 to 35 who work for Twitter. Some of them knew me. I'm not saying I'm a nuisance, but I'm aggressive. So they know my issues and what I've been saying forever. And we're just sitting there talking. And I started asking questions about the NFL deal. And I learned things about what they're looking to do and how much it could reach people who don't have TVs or in England that want to watch the football game. But what I learned in that moment was these people, the employees, were so full of energy, so full of life, and so positive on the future of the company. And I've been involved with companies that suck and I've spoken to their employees, and they didn't act like that. They acted miserable. These kids were hungry and motivated and understood the challenges. So out comes Jack Dorsey. Frankly, I'm not intimidated by people very often. I was the first one to walk over to Jack because that's who I am, and I had to shake his hand and meet him. When I looked up at him and he looked at me, I had a moment where I took a step back. He was so polarizing and intense that I, like, he looked me in the eye like he, he knew who I was, and he was, like, much different than what you see normally. And what I mean by that is if you look at the shareholder uh, annual earnings that have come out and they periscope, Jack Dorsey looks sad, he looks down, he looks depressed. You talk to him one-on-one in person, you know in his eyes he's very present and very interested in what I was saying. He's not an actor, so he wasn't full of shit. He was looking at me 
really curious to hear what I had to say and very straight up with me on what he had to say. And I think what I learned from Jack more than anything was that he cares about Twitter as a service to help the world maybe more than he cares about the stock, which to shareholders is shitty. But in reality, if he cares that much and he, and he works that hard on it, the money will come. Because if, if he wants to make the world all be able to communicate and all have a free voice, the money will come. So as for the meeting, the main thing I wanted to get across to them was PR. So for the last two years, while the stock has gone from 70 down to 16, 17, there has been a horrible ability for them to communicate. So there's PR. PR is you know, press releases coming out with press of what's going on with the company, and then there's investor relations. And for the last two years, my biggest beef was that this company had things happen, but nobody knew. So they would put it in a blog or on Twitter IR, and no one would know. Eventually, it would get disseminated, but it got disseminated, and then companies like Recode, Kara Swisher, whatever, took their spin on it, and it was never the spin of the actual company. And my argument was, you're not communicating with the street. You're not communicating with Wall Street the way we're used to you communicating. And you're supposed to be one of the most communicative companies on the planet. And I said to Jack, what are you going to do about it? So what, he, what I already knew, but he explained to me was, they hired Natalie Karras. And Nat Karras comes from Apple. She was in PR working alongside, to me, the greatest PR man in the history of the world, and Steve Jobs. So she came there, I want to say it's about four months ago, and you could see the entire temperament of the company has changed. The communication with the, with the street, the communication with everyone. There's not this big negative flow of they suck, they suck, but they're actually putting out press releases. So you sign a deal with the NFL, you need to put out a, a, a press release that says, us and the you know Twitter and the NFL have done this this and 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 um, Jack Dorsey says this is a great combination whatever right so they haven't done that since the day they came public so Jack Dorsey was very genuine with me answered my question and said Carter we agree and that's why we hired uh, Mrs Karras and you know and it's changed and that's an important piece to the puzzle without question but the experience was for me surreal you know being there across from these guys that I've chatted with on and off throughout you know, several years, um, but it was really me standing up for my shareholders, going out and representing my shareholders and saying, look, this is what's wrong. What are you going to do about it? So I got the right answers. I really did. It's just a matter of now execution, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, that was kind of cool to see happen uh, in real time, too. You had a legitimate concern. In fact, I think the Periscope that I saw that I was referring to earlier yeah. You you brought up the press release thing during that, and so I knew it, that was an issue for you going into it, sure. and uh, and sure enough, you threw the question out there, and they're like, "We're on it, man." Yeah, and I look, I think that there's a lot of things that are wrong, but there's a lot of things that are right. I feel to me, business like families, like anything, it's about culture, and I don't know if Twitter has de- redefined their culture yet. Because when I first walked into Under Armour and I said, tell me about your culture, and this was in 2002, actually 
Kevin Plank said to me, let me tell you about my culture. And I never really thought of a business and a culture, and then the word became like hot. And he talked about how they're on a mission to become the next Nike. They're going to do this, 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 and this, and this. And, and the work ethic and the people that were there, you could feel it. Twitter's been clearly a train wreck. Between Nick Bilton and his, you know, his, um, not only his book, but constantly discrediting them as a bunch of potheads that don't do anything. They need to have a change in culture, and I feel like it's beginning because they have adults in the room now. They have the guy I referenced earlier from Google, Omid. They have Hugh Johnson, who's the CFO of Pepsi, who's now on the board. The woman who runs BET, Deborah Lee, she's on the board. And you have um, you know Anthony Noto, who's a 25-year veteran in the business, from Wall Street also, I don't know if you know, but the CFO was the former CFO of the NFL. But yeah, I think they, I think they have the, the, this is what I look at it, they have the front office better, and we, you know, we should talk like in a year about this and see where we're at. But yeah. I, I, be, I believe the company can get it straight. I believe there's still a ton of risk involved in what they're doing. But when it comes to investing, this is how you make money. You make money when everyone hates it. And I'll say one last thing about the, the company as a stock. T-W-I-T-T-E-R is loved by Wall Street. T-W-T-R, which is the stock symbol, is hated by Wall Street. The people on Wall Street adore the product. They use it like we do, every day, constantly. They find trends of stocks. They find different ways to monetize off of it. If Twitter could get it right, it'll become a darling of Wall Street because Wall Street wants to love it. They just need to get the right reason to, and that's going to take time. And in the meantime, they have, you, you talked about all this cash they have on hand. Is that just VC money or is that actual, because I, I still don't get how they generate revenue. I know that they have a user base that they can leverage, but uh, I, I don't. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how they generate revenue. It's really relatively simple. Most of their business is advertising. So you're scrolling through your shit. I don't see any advertising, though. Where is it? I see a promoted tweet, like, you know, once an hour. You know what's weird? There's certain people that don't see it. I see it not annoyingly often, but I see Clorox commercials and NFL commercials. I see all kinds of stuff. And maybe who you, I don't know how that works, but that's how they've grown their revenues. Also, data analytics, which is a really important thing. I won't get into it in detail, but the bottom line is there's data in that, in that in, there's information in, in data on Twitter, and people are using that data to, to figure things out. You know, whether or not it's, it be who's going to win a, an election, or, you know, there's a lot of data analytics. They make some money there, they make some money on, uh, the majority is all about advertising at this point. This is a big world, and we think within our country a lot. Twitter's bigger in Japan than Facebook. And mm-hmm. I asked people why. And the Japanese people that I spoke to said, look, our culture is different. We want to know what's going on quickly because we don't have time to sit and look at pictures of cats. So they are totally attracted to it. So when you think about it, the rest of the world, is for, for both Facebook and Twitter, is a much bigger opportunity than America. You have India and a lot of places in India that are just getting phones or just getting computers and they want to pick a, pick a social media. That's why it's so important for Twitter to market correctly. And secondly, I think maybe even more important is once people get there to give them an onboarding process that teaches them as quickly as possible. 
Cool. All right. So stepping back from Twitter and just looking overall on the tech sector in general, what's your out your overall outlook for this sector? I feel like this whole startup unicorn thing where all these, you know, Snapchat last time I checked was valued at something like thirty billion dollars. Yeah, it's actually I think it's twenty four billion, which is uh, maybe maybe you're right, but it's dub- more than double what Twitter is, and they do one third of the revenue. I yeah. think it's just insane that an, yeah. an application that takes a picture that only lasts ten seconds. No, 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 you, you got you got it wrong. Listen, Snapchat's freaking awesome, especially for the younger generation. It's not just about that. They put they put together like throughout the day like. 15 different things that you yeah, so throughout your day let's say you get up in the morning go for a walk you take a picture and again this is not for us it's for them but you get up in the morning you go to starbucks take a picture of the cup you go on the beach take a picture of the ocean and then at the end of the day you have a story that people slide through and it's and it's also the fact that it disappears keeps it autonomous keeps kids out of trouble doing anything stupid you know like, like if they post something on twitter that's there forever versus a, a video that vanishes after you know a, an hour or whatever a day after it's done so yes, Snapchat is real. Is it going to become a mega company? It all depends on the, what they do going forward. Because they see the thing is the way I'm starting to view it is there's a place for all of them to succeed majorly. I think that Twitter definitely has its place. We know Facebook and Instagram is solid. But to your point about the tech sector, I think that the whole unicorn stuff is, has majorly slowed down already. When you have a bidding war in a private equity area where bankers are trying to get people to put more money in, and, and the people who put, let's think about it like this, you put in a million dollars of Snapchat when it's ten, uh, five million, five billion dollar market cap. Then the, your broker calls you, a financial advisor calls you back three months later and says, oh my God, it's 10 billion, I think it's going to 50 billion, you need to put another million dollars in. So there, this is all fictitious bullshit, it's not based on anything. Twitter's based on Shareholder, uh, the price of a stock, their shareholder, um, their market cap is based on share price times shares outstanding. That's where the number comes from. The number here is totally based on bullshit. But I think the unicorn business is slowing. I think the tech sector is like this. I think there's the mega caps, the monsters, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Amazons that are here forever. They'll continue to find their way as new countries come along and are able to you know, get things delivered to their house. Amazon will get bigger and bigger. I think that there are medium-sized companies that are getting gobbled up by these companies. And then there's always you know, the, the next phase, whether it's VR or autonomous driving. So I think, that, I think the tech sector is alive and well. And there's three tiers. The fourth tier is what you're talking about, which is the unicorns. And, you know, 99 out of 100 of those are going to go out of business. And that's not much different than it was in, in the 90s or in the 80s. It's just the way it just got very, very hot because the market did well and people needed a place to put their money. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of IPOs in the last year have been a disaster. Now they come public and they go straight down, and sometimes to the tune of 70% because they were pumped up to begin with. And that's Wall Street's, you know, bullshit. I follow a lot of the uh, information security in- industry. I have a lot of friends that do information security, and I, I, p- I pay attention to a lot of that stuff. And a lot of my podcasts revolve around that, which I guess most people would would uh, recognize it as cybersecurity. But uh, I've noticed in the last year that more and more cybersecurity firms are going public, and it's now at the point where there's a um, 
stock index. It's an ETF, and it's, it's H-A-C-K. Yeah, the ETF, yeah. H-A-C-K, hack. Yeah, so, so, okay, this is my view. You missed the insane excitement of the industry stock-wise. So Palo Alto Networks was the first one that really exploded. They can't, and this is before. This is not the big boys, the HPs, the Symantec's. This is the up-and-coming companies. So Palo Alto came public, traded around forty, uh, went to sixty, went to thirty because they were getting sued by Juniper Networks, and the stock proceeded to go to two hundred fifty dollars a share. Uh, FireEye came public, I think, around twenty-five, went to a hundred. It's now sixteen. So the bubble, the excitement of all what it could be. And then the, the cool off, and now it's all separating the men from the boys. And what's going on is exactly what I just described to you about technology and social media. Um, what's going on now is the big boys, the Symantec's of the world, the HP, the Cisco's, they're buying the, the, medium, the medium-sized companies. And there's a few, like last week, I believe, there was a smaller company that came public. So cybersecurity is real. It has, it has mellowed out a bit because of the fact that Number one, China signed an agreement with us not to hack us. Doesn't mean that they won't, but they have, I believe, less. I also think that more companies are, are armed with protection, so they're you know they're ready to, to fight it. But there's always new stuff going on. I like this sector now because it's it's again I, I buy companies that are out of favor, and you know these these stocks have been crushed. Like FireEye has gone from 100 down to 16. Companies growing 40 percent year over year. They do the cybersecurity for Visa. They're the ones that are called in anytime something major happens. So, oh yeah, Target, they do contracts with the government, everything. Right. So Target gets hacked, Anthem gets hacked. They're the first ones on the scene. So there's opportunity there. I think there's going to the blue coat technologies got bought out. I believe it was, I want to say, 5.4 billion dollar deal just a few weeks ago. So it's important. You missed the sexy, exciting part where all of them went up 25 fold. Now it's like it's all settled down. And the boys will be separated from the men, I think, more by acquisition than organic growth. But it's definitely uh, an industry and a sector that's here to stay and will yep. continue to grow. Very, imp- It's very important. Okay. Well, um, first of all, is there anything that you wanted to cover or anything you wanted to talk about that you missed or didn't get a chance to? The only thing I want to say is, you know, I'm, I, I manage money for a living for individuals and institutions. Uh, you could find me on Twitter at Carter Mansback. Uh, my direct line in my office is 561-290-9400. Obviously, you could tell from this conversation how in-depth I get about these companies and how much passion I have for researching and understanding them. And, uh, you know, this is what I focus on. I think if, you, if you're interested in working with someone like me, feel free to reach out to me. Great. I, I want to I thank you because this was great. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. And one more time, if people want to stalk you on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? It's at Carter Mansbach, C-A-R-T-E-R-M-A-N-S-B-A-C-H. I respond to everybody, and I actually, I don't know if you do, but I leave my direct message open, so if anybody ever has any questions, they could just ask me. Awesome. Thanks, Carter. Yeah, thank you, Vince. I really appreciate it. My guest this episode has been financial consultant Carter Mansbach of Jupiter Wealth Strategies. 
Carter is securities licensed through InvestCorp, a registered broker-dealer. The information shared during this podcast is intended for general information purposes only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual. It is suggested that you consult with your tax, legal, and or financial services professional regarding your individual situation. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of InvestCorp or Vince in the Bay or anyone else you could possibly think of for that matter and uh, once again thank you for listening to this episode catch prior episodes by subscribing on itunes and soundcloud visit my blog it's vincentthebay.com and hit me up on twitter twitter.com slash vincentthebay until next time basta <laughs>